and welcome to the One Link Podcast. I'm Amy, and I'm here with Brad. Hey, Amy. Good to be with you. Well, in our last episode, we had another discussion about Acts 16 and the difficulties and victories that Paul and his companions faced as they were redirected to Macedonia. Yes, and unfortunately, we had to end with Paul and Silas being beaten by rods and didn't get to the best part of that story. That's right. I love the rest of that story. After they were beaten, they are placed in the inner cell of the jail with their feet in stocks. And this is where we find them praying and singing hymns. Right. And if we remember back to our last episode, Paul and Silas didn't just have a couple boo-boos from being beaten by rods. I mean, they would have been in severe pain, really, really bad shape. So I think this provides some context for this moment where they are singing and praying to the Lord. Yes, their flesh was weak, but their spirits were strong in this moment. And here we have another great example of what we spoke about last time with the life of Christ being manifested in the sufferings of his people. When this jailer, who's about to kill himself because he thinks they have escaped, asks how he can be saved. Yes, I've always found this exchange really interesting. His first emotion when he wakes up from the earthquake is to be terrified that the prisoners got away. That's pretty normal. And that he would suffer the consequences of this failure as a jailer. But as soon as he learns they're still there, his next feeling is a deep conviction that he is a sinner and needs to be saved. I wish we knew more about how he came to this moment of asking how he could be saved. For sure. We only have limited information on this man and his thought processes. It makes you wonder if there was something that he heard or saw in Paul and Silas that already had him thinking about this. Yes, surely God was at work in his life, and this incident was just the thing that to shake him up, literally, and cause him to cry out for salvation. I agree. And nice use of surely. If I remember from our uh, previous episode, you mentioned that surely doesn't often exist in the world, so we need flexibility. But when we're talking about God, though, we can be sure of a great many things. Good memory, Amy. Yes, surely does show up when we're talking about God. Well, after this powerful moment of salvation in Philippi, Paul and his companions continue traveling through what is today the country of Greece. He visits Thessalonica, where they run into some more trouble. Right. A mob starts a riot right after hearing Paul's message, and instead of Paul and Silas being brought before the magistrates, they grab the person who they're staying with, a man named Jason, and drag him before the city officials. Yes, sometimes preaching the good news has consequences for those who associate with us, and we hear stories about this all the time, don't we? That's right. Sharing the gospel is wonderful, but risky business. There's no way around it. So Paul and Silas are sent off to Berea in the night, once they arrive there, they continue sharing about Jesus. There's no stopping them, is there? No. May we have the same determination. Amen. And Luke tells us that the people there received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day, and that as a result, many of them believed. So this was a very fruitful time in Berea. It was, but the trouble that began in Thessalonica ended up following them to Berea. And there is another incident with an angry crowd. So the believers there sent Paul off to Athens, while Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. And while in Athens, we have one of my favorite moments in the book of Acts, Paul's address to the Athenians on Mars Hill. Yes, it is one of my favorites, too. I love this speech as well. Why don't we camp out on that part of the story for the rest of our episode? Sounds good. Well, let's first paint a picture of the setting that Paul found himself there in Athens. Okay, we begin the story by learning that Paul is distressed by all of the idols that he sees around him. It was said about Athens in this time that there were more idols than people. Now, exaggeration or not, there were certainly a lot of false gods. 
Yes, and I think it's significant that Luke points out that Paul is distressed to see this godlessness, or in this case, I guess it isn't godlessness, but too many gods. But this grieves his heart, and, and I think our hearts should probably be a little bit more grieved by the lostness of the world. Very true. And so he begins to share with Jews and God-fearing Greeks. These would have been Gentiles who observed the Jewish faith. And this was Paul's pattern, as we've seen. He tended to go to the Jews in a town first, and eventually he starts debating with some people from two different Greek schools of philosophy. What were their names again, Amy? Are you trying to make me say the hard words again? Well, you do such a good job researching the pronunciation and everything. I see. Well, the two groups were the Epicureans. That one was the tongue twister for me. And then, of course, the Stoics. I don't know all of what the Stoics were about, but somehow I feel like we would have connected on a certain level, Amy. <laughs> well, you are a fairly Stoic person, Brad, but let me tell you more about these two groups, though we'll have to go with the short and sweet version. Epicureans believed that everything in the world was made up of atoms and governed by certain physical laws. Gods existed somewhere out there, but they weren't very important to daily life. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that God was everywhere around them, in nature, in the universe, in man. And their goal was to live in harmony with this by striving towards perfection of godly character, that is, by being extremely virtuous and self-controlled. So while Epicureans believed that pleasure and happiness were the ultimate goal, Stoics were striving for a strict form of virtuous living. Sounds like an interesting group of people to have a debate with. I'm really sure it was. I can only imagine the kinds of topics that were discussed among them. Mm-hmm. And so eventually they take Paul to the, how do you say the name of that place? Now I'm going to let you take a stab at this one. All right. They take him to the Areopagus, which was both a location and the name of a, a forum of rulers uh, in Athens that met in that location. The name Areopagus comes from the Greek god of war, Ares but it's more commonly known by its Roman name, Mars Hill. Interestingly enough, my wife and I visited this spot about seven years ago, and there's a plaque that contains this passage from Acts. It's pretty cool. Oh, I bet that was cool. It was. Uh, you have you have this amazing view out across many of the ancient sites of Athens, and the Parthenon is right up above you. It's beautiful. So this is the spot that Paul is brought to when he goes to the meeting of the Areopagus. Nailed it. Thanks. And they are, they're a bit like a, the Greek version of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. This was a group of respected local men who were charged with investigating spiritual or philosophical ideas. And we learn from this passage that people in Athens love sitting around talking about the latest ideas and philosophies. Yes, and Paul stands up and begins his speech from a very interesting place. He references an altar that he has seen to an unknown God. Let me read this passage for us. It says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Yes, yeah, so this is a great example of building a bridge between, between where people are at and the gospel. And he builds off some an existing concept or worldview and then begins to explain the truth about God. In this case, because he isn't speaking with Jews who would have had a shared understanding of creation and other basic characteristics of God, he starts by sharing about God's creation of the world and his desire to have a relationship with people. So he begins with where what they know now, and he doesn't assume anything. Yes, and this isn't the last time he refers to something that would have been familiar to the Athenians. He quotes a well-known uh, Cretan philosopher, Epimenides, 
and connects his writing to truth about God, saying, for in him we live and move and have our being. Then he quotes a Sicilian Stoic philosopher, Aratus, who wrote, we are his offspring. So Paul knew his audience in their literature really well. Indeed he did. But what's so interesting for me is that these quotes were originally written to describe a pagan god. In fact, for in him we live and move and have our being was used in the worship of the Greek god Zeus. So this is some pretty edgy stuff that Paul is doing, Amy. Indeed it was. So is this a good time to uh, open up a can of worms, would you say? Eh, why not? We don't shy away from the tough topics around here, right? Absolutely. Well, this speech is a good example of someone contextualizing as they share the gospel, which has been a controversial topic in Christian circles in recent years. Yes, it really has. I've heard some about this. In particular, there's been a lot of discussion surrounding ministry to Muslims and whether it's okay to reference the Quran as a way to build bridges with them. Yes, Muslim ministry has been a particularly hot topic surrounding contextualizations, but I've also seen a lot of debate about things that churches in America are doing, which they might refer to as contextualization. The goal is to be more relevant to the lost communities around them, but some have argued that these churches are taking things too far or even compromising the gospel in order to be cool or not offend people. So this is probably a topic worth unpacking a little bit in the brief time we have left. That sounds good. Well, maybe we can start by simply defining what the term contextualization means. Okay. Well, at its basic level, contextualization, at least as it relates to Christian witness, means being aware of your context as you share Christ. So this means being aware of the worldview and the important values or concerns of the people with whom you're sharing the gospel in order to both connect with them and also help them understand the gospel more clearly. So often this involves modifying some words or analogies you use, or in some cases it might affect where you begin in sharing the gospel. Okay. So what does this look like practically? Well, practically, we all contextualize to some degree when we share the gospel. For example, Amy, if you were gonna, if you were asked to share the gospel with a group of kindergarten students, you would probably share things a bit differently than if, say, you were sharing with a group of college students. You would use words that kindergartners understand and maybe use some examples or analogies that they would connect with and understand. Now, no one would look at that and say, well, Amy is preaching two different gospels. We understand that the gospel is the same, but we have to explain things a bit differently to each group so that they can best understand. In Paul's case, he knows that his Greek audience doesn't share his view of creation, and he starts there. Now, if he were sharing with a Jewish audience, he, he could assume that they believe that God created the world and, and perhaps start elsewhere in explaining the good news. Yeah, that makes sense. So why all the controversy over this topic? Well, like a lot of issues, we see people who are maybe taking things too far, and so others tend to react the opposite way or to completely dismiss the importance of contextualization by calling it you know, compromising the gospel or something like that. And so these two extremes tend to feed off each other and, and become more polarized. There was a word for this you taught me recently, Amy. Yes, complementary schismogenesis. Yeah, I love that word because it describes what happens when people from Two opposing positions tend to feed off each other and become further and further apart in their stances. For example, we could probably come up with examples of people who did, in fact, take things too far in the name of being relevant and either compromised the gospel or began living in a very worldly lifestyle. At the same time, I can remember people who came out to work with us in Central Asia who, after seeing these people who took things too far, were adamant that contextualization wasn't biblical and they weren't going to compromise the gospel. And what happened is that they shared with people the exact way that they would have back in America. 
And the result of this was the fact that it was very difficult for people to understand because many of the words and analogies they were using were completely foreign to their worldview. So in order to understand the gospel, they first had to understand an American worldview, and then they had to try to understand the gospel. And to me, that's putting an unnecessary barrier to the gospel. So perhaps what we need to aim for is careful contextualization. And I think that Paul does a good job of this here. He references something that would have been familiar to the people while being clear that God isn't like the pagan gods that they have been worshiping. He says right after quoting these two philosophers, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. I see. So, Brad, I want to reference again your earlier warning about not cherry-picking verses. You're always keeping me accountable on that one, aren't you, Amy? Good job. Of course. Now, could we say that Paul's reference to these philosophers is just a description of what he said rather than a prescription of what the rest of us should do? This certainly is something we need to be careful of when we're reading the Bible, and I don't think we all need to you know, reference Greek philosophers when we share the gospel, certainly. Oh, good. I'm a little rusty on my Greek philosophers. Yes, me too. But I think that Luke includes details on speeches like this for a reason. You have a handful of them that are recorded for us in Acts. You know, Peter's speech at Pentecost, Stephen's speech before he's martyred, and several others. And I think Luke is trying to show us something important with them. In this case, he gives us a great example of Paul building a bridge by understanding the local people's worldview. And this is no watered-down gospel, Amy. Paul tells them that they need to repent and that God has set a day for judgment. I, I don't think this audience went away from this thinking, Paul must be telling us to, you know, it's okay to keep worshiping Zeus. No, I don't imagine that they would have. In fact, some were quite disproving of his com- comments, particularly about the idea of someone being raised from the dead, while others wanted to discuss further. Right, and I think we have to expect that some people will take offense to or be turned off by the gospel message, no matter how well we're able to contextualize it. But we have to be careful that their confusion or offense is over the gospel itself, and not because we're using words and analogies that don't make sense to them. The focus of contextualization isn't, what am I saying? It is, what is the other person understanding? And this is worth careful consideration as we share with those who don't know Christ. That makes sense. And couldn't this idea of contextualization have implications for our lifestyle and things of this nature? Absolutely. For example, we lived among Muslims, and we tried to dress in a way that was considered modest by their culture, not by American culture, in order to not lose credibility as we shared the good news. We also didn't have pork in our homes so that people would still want to come eat with us. So while wearing shorts and eating bacon aren't forbidden by Scripture, uh, we made these choices to build bridges with people. I see. That's a great example. Well, Brad, we are getting to that point in the episode that we always hate. When we realize we're almost out of time. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I always feel like there's so much more to say. Indeed, but there's always our next episode, and we will continue to discuss important topics like this as we learn from the book of Acts. I'm looking forward to it, Amy, and we'll see you all next time. See you next time. 